My name is Marcel. I am an alcoholic. And my home group is a early group in San Francisco, which is a big book study at 8 a.m. on Saturday morning. My sobriety date is September 18th, 1988. And I, I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm grateful to be sober and to be able to celebrate another day of life. I'd like to welcome any newcomer and anyone in early recovery, and please stay. You're in a safe place. We really care about you. I want to thank the committee for asking me to come. Thank you, for Mike, for putting my name in. I want to thank the committee. It's a great honor to be here. My gracious host, Nick, uh, Kim, and our tapers. And uh, let's, let's thank the committee for all the wonderful work they're doing. <laughs> There's incredible energy in this room tonight. I mean, you can just feel it. It just makes your heart sink. You know, I look around this room and I see people that I have a lot of history with, and you know who you are. <laughs> and I want to thank you for continuing to be on my journey for such a long time. There are also people on the platform, people on Zoom, also I have history with. There's someone on that platform that I used to drink with. <laughs> and she has 36 years now. And I want to thank her for being there for my family in every conceivable way, and I want you to know how much you mean to me, how much you mean to me. Tom I, you know, has been one of my mentors for a long time. He's sober a very long time, okay. And he also took the life of two people. And many times, Tom would say he didn't like the term speaker. He preferred the term storyteller. Because when we come in the rooms, we don't show our dogmas, and we don't show our beliefs, we share our experiences through our storytelling. And everyone in this room has a story to tell. So tonight, I'm going to share a few stories about you, myself with you. When I got sober, my sponsor said, I wish you the joy of a purposeful life. And she said, the purpose of life, dear, is not to be happy. The purpose of life is to matter and to be productive and possibly make some difference if you lived at all. So Alcoholics Anonymous will guide you how to matter. And I needed to hear that. Because when I drink and I do all those other things, you don't matter. When I drink, I'm very mean. I do very cruel things with absolutely no remorse. Both of my parents died before I got sober. I adored my father. He was a very kind and honorable man who was dying of cancer. And I was supposed to be giving him chemo injections. I doubt very seriously if I was doing it correctly. And I would go to the hospital, and he would hold my hand with tears in his eyes, saying, please not, try not to stop drinking. Stop drinking, dear. As much as I love this man, I could not do that. Because love doesn't change people. And I had great regrets about that. But regrets are an appalling waste of energy. You cannot build on them. They're only good for wallowing in. So do not lead a life that leads to more regrets. I also went through a very difficult divorce. My only son, who I love with all my heart, had told me he was really quite content with not being part of his life. Because I, when I drink and do all those things, nothing is sacred, nothing. The disease turned me into a toxic animal. I destroyed everything I touched. That is a very tragic way to live. And thank God I'm not that woman anymore. Thank you, Alcoholics Anonymous. 
I want to thank all of our incredible AA and Al-Anon speakers and all the panel members. I want to thank you for sharing your hearts with us. It's in my experience that both programs save lives. My sponsor, I said, make friends with adversity. It's going to be a part of your life, as long as you're sober. My sponsor died on May the 13th. I'd always had the same sponsor. She was 94 years old, and she'd been sober 63 years. So she had a lot of living experience in sobriety. She was not only reading that book, like you just don't read it and memorize it, you lived it, and she lived it with every part of her being, doing what Bell and Bob did before, one alcoholic talking to another alcoholic. Everything with Kathleen was love. Listen, overlook, value, and encourage. For years, people have been saying to me, what's wrong with you, doctors? Lawyers, clergy, law enforcement. <laughs> but she looked at me with those warm, kind eyes, and she said, what happened to you, dear? And she listened. She listened very well. And if you lived in that world of deadness, darkness, and despair for as long as I did, a lot had happened to me. She overlooked my menacing demeanor, I come from a very violent world. I did not used to look like this. She said, I knew those were your survival skills, but I could see how wounded and broken you were. She valued me as a human being by the way she showed respect, and I returned that respect. And she encouraged me to grow up at the time she died, that if I want to honor her memory, I will try to live by the spiritual principles of this program and try and do what she did, because she did it really, really well. I find that my life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. One of my favorite acronyms for God is grace over drama. Grace over drama, although drama can be very delicious sometimes. <laughs> it's also very addictive and it hurts people. And hopefully I got sober to stop hurting people. I am the product of an interracial marriage. My father came to the Philippines to study mathematics. My mother's French came to San Francisco to take care of her aunt who was dying of cancer. If my father was alive, he'd be 111. My mother'd be 117. And both my parents were tough as granite. But they had gentle hearts. My father went overseas to fight in World War II. Sometimes you'll hear the term that all Asians look alike. We don't. Well, when my father returned from fighting overseas, sometimes we were mistaken for being Japanese, which was not healthy for us following the bombing of Pearl Harbor by the Japanese. So that was the beginning of my learning survival skills, and I needed them. I was walking home with my parents one night, and three men forced us into an alley, and they were going to harm us. My father always carried a large knife. He stood in front of us in warrior position. He says, two of you are going to go down. He slowly backed out of that situation. That was one of many situations. When I got sober, my sponsor said, I think you made the decision when you were very, very young, the big V word, vulnerability. Not going to be part of my portfolio, man. 
I'm not going to give you a chance to reject me. I'm going to reject you first. It's been my experience, Alcoholics Anonymous has never rejected me. Alcoholics Anonymous does not care what my age is, what my race is, what my occupation is, what my religion, sexual persuasion, or how many felonies I have. Welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> you robbed the bank. You robbed seven banks. Oh, we have to have coffee. You know, I don't know. <laughs> also, the disease of alcoholism really doesn't care how many degrees you have or what your portfolio is. It's going to strip you bare. And it did. My money never hugged me. My money never hugged me. I did not drink in my early youth because I said I would never be like my mother. But the disease waits. The disease waits. And I started drifting into that dark world. And I would come to visit Alcoholics Anonymous. But I did not want to identify. I would hear you talking about your drug drivings all the time. I drove drunk all the time. I never got a drug driving. I had trouble with water transportation. <laughs> I've always gotten off at heightened speed. I still do. I was driving a boat on Lake Barrios, totally out of control. I flipped it. I flipped it. I accidentally went over a waterfall, river rafting, and. Uh, <laughs> Initially, I thought, you know how the rush comes? I'm th I see that coming up. It's going to be quite a rush. And then I'm thinking, I wonder, I wonder if there's a deep pool at the end of that drop. <laughs> and I was lucky there was. But all of a sudden, the force of the water kept on pushing me down. And all of a sudden, I realized, you are drowning. And all of a sudden, my head pops back up. So that night, I'm sitting around the campfire. You know, with my second water glass full of tequila talking about the wonders of nature. <laughs> I also crashed a boat on Alcatraz. <laughs> this was not well received by the Coast Guard. <laughs> there was a meeting in San Francisco called 1010 Valencia. I know some of the people in this room remember that. And I used to go to meetings drunk. In this particular time, I'd fallen off the chair. I was lying there, this little heap on the floor. And this was kind of a rough and ready meeting. You know, my, my friend Susan sitting there, her sponsor used to go to this meeting. She came out one night and there were bullet holes in the side of her car. You remember that? Yeah. So I'm lying there on the floor in this little heap and people are coming in, they're kind of walking around me. And, uh, <laughs> but then Eleanor came in. And Eleanor was this tough New York jazz singer. And she got down on her knees in front of me, and she said, lift up your head, dear. You can have dignity and grace as a woman of Alcoholics Anonymous. And she helped me off the floor into the chair, and she welcomed me to Alcoholics Anonymous. And help me, that's what we do in Alcoholics Anonymous. We help one another. We don't judge and harm one another. I was in detox one night, and H and I comes in. H and I comes in. And, uh, he comes in, he weighs about 300 pounds on a light day, and at that point I weigh about 85. And um, tough, tough guy, tough guy. And he starts talking about H&I, which I know nothing about, but then he starts talking about alcohol in a world of violence, and that's my world. 
And all of a sudden, this gentle giant of a man looks at me with that eye-to-eye -eye look, and only the eyes of another alcoholic could give. And he said, you know, Marcel, you don't have to return to that world. And he planted the seed of hope that night. He planted the seed of hope that night. And later on, I get sober, and I'm in a meeting, and uh, this one of the H&I committee members comes up to me, this old dude, and he was actually, at the, at the time, he was uh, coordinating San Quentin. And he said, uh, I've been watching you for years, kid. You're a real taker. You've always been a taker. You have to learn how to give H&I business meetings tonight. You're going to do something called a commitment. I'm going to be at your house at 6.30. I'm going to be on time. You be ready, kid. And he turned around and walked away from me. I said, who is this guy? You know, you know. <laughs> and uh, you know how old timers get together when they, have, they decide, well, what are we going to do with it? We'll get our H&I commitment. We'll get all our service members. <laughs> and, uh, um, so I go to the H&I business meeting that night. And who's sitting there but that 300-pound gangster who'd been in detox, you know, I thought. And he was coordinating the prison and jail meetings. I'm thinking, well, he's sitting here, so this gig must be okay. So I got a commitment that night, and I've been doing H&I ever since. H&I makes my heart sing. I started by doing, my, my first one was the psych unit. They said, this will be your first one. You'll fit right in. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, so then I started doing detoxes and children's facilities, and then I started doing jails. and. Uh, I've been doing prisons consistently for 31 years, five state and two federal. Okay. Right. So in a couple of these, I'm in there with 25 guys who have taken the life of that individual. I understand that type of rage. I understand that. It's been a very long time since I've laid my hands on anyone, with or without a weapon. But I come to you to remember, to remember, to remember what the disease did to me. And the disease waits. The disease waits. I bottomed out in Chicago. I'd gone there for a family reunion. I did not want to go because I was really physically ill at the time. It was the last time my uncle was coming to America. And he said, I really want to see you. I went to that reunion and I totally dishonored it. My cousin's a nurse. Her husband is a cardiologist. No one mentions alcoholism. And after that, it's all hearsay. They put me on a plane. I don't remember landing in San Francisco. I have no idea how I got home. They called my son, who was at UCLA at the time, and they said, you've got to get home. There's something terribly wrong with your mother. And my son comes home, and he finds his mother weighing 85 pounds, curled up on the floor like a toxic animal dying of alcoholism. A beautiful image for your son to see. This is a family disease, and the disease of alcoholism can rip the very soul from a child. You may have forgotten, but they haven't. And once again, he called a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I could not sit up. I could not stand up. They threw me in the back of a station wagon, and they said I was screaming at the top of my lungs all the way up to detox. I do not want to be an alcoholic. And that night I laid in detox, kicking like a dog. And I hope I do not forget that. And they said, you've got to get a sponsor. Now, I've been watching Kathleen for years at meetings, sober a long time. You know, always had the time to take, talk to newcomers. But this woman was so alive. She'd also been watching me. And she used to say to her husband, what is it behind that girl's eyes where they have that look? What happened to that girl? 
So I said, I want Kathleen, first of all. I said, I said, well, she sponsors a lot of women. And I said, I want Kathleen. And they said, why don't you call her? And she gave me the number. So she used to watch me coming into meetings. I'd come into meetings at the last part of my, towards the end of my drinking, I said I only weighed 85 pounds. I'd come in there just in three shades of black, you know. I kind of looked like an emaciated ninja. And, uh, <laughs> you know. And uh, three shades of black, daring to talk to you with my less than gracious attitude, and half the time I was armed. And, and, uh, and you were so very kind to me, and you did not judge me. And I kept coming back. Kathleen was watching that. So she drove up there, and I could never look at anyone's eyes, because my perception of what I saw in your eyes of me was very ugly. How you feel about yourself is projected to others no matter how much you try to camouflage it. So she drove up there and she looked at me with those warm, kind eyes and she said, are you ready, Derek? And I was so ready. <laughs> and she said, a lot of women want what I have, but they don't want to do what I do. And she just said, you're welcome to do what I do. And that night I committed every part of my being to alcoholics and novices and nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. She said, your world will change as you change. And that's going to require ongoing commitment on your part. And anything you put before your recovery, you're going to lose. It's all right for you to look at your past. Stop staring at it. Stop staring at it. She said, you did get it sober to be admired, to be grand, or to get caught up out of your perceived magnificence. She said, you got sober to be a maximum service to God and another human being. Put your ego, your pride, and your subtle air of entitlement up on the shelf and leave it there. She always talked about the delusion of wellness. The delusion of wellness. She says, I'm not immune to going out with 63 years. No one is. Only your ego tells you that. So there's no way her ego wasn't there. The difference between self-esteem and ego, self-esteem doesn't need an audience. <laughs> Alcoholic ego always needs an audience. She said, I don't care how hard you're trying this stuff. You're trying very hard. Some things just come with time, and sometimes they don't come just because you're sober. And many things in my life did not come to fruition without the passage of a great deal of time. I always looked at my life as being very empty. And one of my mentors said, Marcel, instead of your life as being empty, why don't you look at your life as being spacious? But you have to learn to fill it with more healthy things. I came in here, you know, exhausted and enraged, and I was always trying to get even. And she said, well, if you're trying to get even, why don't you start with the people who are kind to you? Which is another way of looking at things. And there were a lot of people who were very, very kind to me. I've always liked the poet Mary Oliver. Her poems are short, but to me, they have deep meaning. They have deep meaning. And one of my favorites is, a loved one once gave me a box full of darkness. It took me years to see it was a special gift. I saw my alcoholism as a box full of darkness, but it turned out to be such a special gift because it's guided me to the life that I have now.
I got cancer when I had 11 months of sobriety. I have no relatives here. I'd never had a friend in my life before coming to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was surrounded by the loving arms of the program Alcoholics Anonymous. This Irish couple in the program, the ones who rescued me from Alcatraz, and the, um, <laughs> said, you're staying with us. I live up three flights of stairs. I don't have an elevator. They treated me like their daughter. I was overwhelmed with their kindness. I said, why are you doing this? We're not related. And they said, someone did it for us, darling. And that's what we do. We help one another. I've had eight sponsees with cancer. Whatever you're going through, we will sit with you, we will walk with you, we will hold you. You are never alone in Alcoholics Anonymous. But I had to become an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous and let you know what was going on so you could help me. When I was sober eight years, a man I love with all my heart died. I was down at Monterey for the conference. Well, I got the message that he had passed. That part of me died that night. And that was his gift to me because I saw how deeply that I could feel. It broke me wide open. But so many things were left unsaid. So if there are people in your life who you love and you care about, tell them. Because the years go by very quickly and they're gone. I went back to school when I had 16 years of sobriety to finish this degree. My father always wanted me to finish this degree. And I was in class one night and the professor said, um, pick an object in your house and write a few notes about it and turn your paper over. And then he picked three people in the class to get up and share about their object and I was one of them. He said, all right, Marcel, get up and share about your object but without your notes. And I had picked my father's favorite chair. I said, that is my father's favorite chair. When I was a young girl, my father would sit in that chair. And my hair was down to my waist. And I would sit on a little chair, had a hassock in front of him. And he would make coconut oil from scratch, like in the old country. And he'd put that oil on my hair, and he'd brush my hair and brush my hair until my hair was like strands of long black silk, and that chair was filled with love. My father was one of the son. So when I had my son, my son would sit on that little hassock, and my dad would whittle these little wooden toys for him. And then my son would climb in his lap, the dog would climb up, the cat would climb up, and the chair was filled with love. But after my father got leukemia, he was too weak to sit in the chair. So when I would sit in the chair, I would prop him on the couch with pillows, and I would sit in the chair, and I would talk to him, and I would read to him, and the chair was still filled with love. But after he died, I couldn't sit in the chair anymore. So that chair was vacant for a very long time. So one day I brought it upstairs by the fireplace and I would sit in it and I would read in it. But there were the times that that chair just seemed to embrace me, just like my dad. Now when I said that in class that night, my voice cracked because I experienced every raw emotion of my father's death that night that I had not experienced when he died because I was drinking and using at the time. So you may never know that many years down the road, you'd get to experience something so very sacred in your life. The class was so quiet, you could have dropped a pin. And um, finally the professor said, well, there may be some people in the room who are more in touch with their emotions than others. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so then I'm walking back to my car, and this young man came running up after me, and he said, that was very intense, Marcel. And, uh, <laughs> and he said, um, my mom has cancer, and I'd really like to talk to you. And I'm an alcoholic. One alcoholic touching the life of another alcoholic. When I had 20 years of sobriety, I got together with my former husband, a man I had not seen for 23 years. When I got sober, I tried to make the amends to the best of my ability. He was not interested in Whenever there was a loss in the family, I would send a note. He would acknowledge it. He did not want to see me. Kathleen said, Marcel, if your heart is in the right place and you are coming from a place of love, the universe has a way of opening its arms and helping you with the healing, but your heart has got to be in the right place. He'd actually escaped from East Germany, and he got his citizenship in the Air Force, and while his mother and sister were still alive, we were going into East Germany to visit them. The Berlin Wall is up. This is the late 60s, early 70s. I know some of you in this room are old enough to remember that. And it was a very dark world at that time. And I was going through some old photo albums, and I found these beautiful pictures of his mother. He was very close to his mother. His father deserted him. And I thought, he should have these photos. So I got a beautiful card with orange and yellow flowers, because I remember how he cherished his garden. And I put the photos in there. I said, I thought you should have these photos. And I said, there were some difficult times on our journey together, but I would like to thank you for gracing my life. And perhaps the time could come, we could have coffee and kuchen together. Off goes the letter. And I meant that. Two weeks later, I go to my mailbox, and I see this handwriting that I have not seen for 23 years. It was a very touching letter thanking me for those photos of his mother. He said, I do not come to the Bay Area that often. I would like to have lunch with you. He lives in Willits. Okay. So we're sitting there having lunch, and he said, um, were you really angry when divorced? He got married right after we divorced. I was actually more than mildly irritated at the time. <laughs> and I said, sometimes we have two nice people who grow apart. It was not necessary for me to go into the deliberate manufacture of misery, which is in the family after it's on page 133. And because of that, we had a really nice afternoon together. But that's because my world has changed, as I have changed. This is my son's stepfather. And when we divorced, he sent my son a very cruel letter. It was very, very cruel. I also I found out some other cruel things I did not know about, and my son was angry. And when I told my son we'd had lunch, he said, you know, Mom, I've heard you talk a lot about forgiveness over the years, family disease, family recovery. My son called him. My son lives overseas. So he starts sending my son cards and letters. He said, oh, perhaps someday we could have lunch. So in November 2010, my son usually comes in November to visit, they got together and had lunch. They had not seen each other in 26 years. He said, I was so honored and happy that Glenn made the time to come and see me because it was such quality time. Now, this is really nice how this all turned out, but if I'd never heard from him again, I would have accepted that. I had no expectations. I had no motive. I was just doing it because of the right thing to do. I went to many, many meetings with Dr. Paul, who wrote Acceptance, the big book about Clarkson Thomas. I went on 11 vacations with him. 
and, and I'd met, I invited him to speak at two conferences, and he reminded me countless times, remember Marcella, acceptance does not mean approval. Acceptance does not mean approval. In the following years, every year when he came to visit, my, my son would drive all the way up to Willis and have lunch with him. Fast forward, when I had 30 years of sobriety, he called me and he said, I'm, I'm having my cancerous kidney removed in San Francisco and I know you're gonna be there to pray with me because you are my friend and I trust you. So I'll be there. And I wanted to be there. And I'm sitting on the edge of his bed when he opened his eyes and we've been divorced a very long time. And I was surprised how emotional I got. <laughs> you know? Now at one time there was something very, very special between the two of us, but alcoholism destroyed that. And it's special again in a different way. Thank you, Alcoholics Anonymous. Now 35 years ago, this is the dude I was gonna get the contract out on. <laughs> My world changes. As I change, as I change. My son is 57 years old. He's lived overseas for a long time. My son remembers my alcoholism. He managed to survive me, which was not an easy task. And uh, this took years of reparation. With my family, I had to quite survive with time. This I must earn. Had to earn my family's love, my family's trust, my family's respect, and the score will never be even in my lifetime in my lifetime. It's wonderful when I go to Germany, I come here, or he comes here, and I hear those words that every mother longs to hear. He was here for Thanksgiving. He hasn't been here for a while because of COVID. I hear those words that every mother longs to hear. I love you, Mom. I love you, Mom. I waited a long time to hear those words, and sometimes you never hear them. Sometimes your children come back to you, and sometimes they don't. My sponsor said, you must stand in readiness. Just stand in readiness. Yeah. But more is always being revealed, no matter how long you're sober. We were talking about someone's birthday one day, and he said, I've never forgotten my 16th birthday. He's never mentioned it. So my sponsor said, ask him. But don't ask him over the phone. Don't ask him on the internet. She said, you ask him face to face, but if you're not willing to accept the answer, don't ask the question. So he came to visit, and I said, you know, you've never mentioned your 16th birthday. And uh, he paused. He said, Mom, you told me to meet you at this restaurant in Chinatown. I'd be to make it a really special day for you. So Mom, I went down to that restaurant, and I waited. And I waited. And I waited. And of course, his alcoholic mother never comes. And then I get on the phone in my alcoholic stupor, and how I hurt him. He said, Mom, I was so lost in those years. Our kids get lost or kids die. I said, darling, I can't erase the pain I caused you. I've been trying to do things differently for a long time, but I will always be an imperfect person. And he said, ah, me too. And he gave me a big hug. And our journey continued. Our journey continued to the level it is now, but I had to learn to do things consistently and also to listen. To listen. I had to learn to listen, just like my sponsor listened to me. The more I listened, the more he talked. I remember speaking at a three-day camp out up at Occidental, something called the Growing Together Weekend, 
And uh, there were 100 teenagers up there, you know, talking about their alcoholic, drug addict parents. You may have forgotten, but they haven't. They haven't. They haven't. My sponsor asked me, uh, what's important to you in a relationship? For me, honesty, trust, respect, someone I can communicate with, someone I can laugh with, integrity. Do we have the same values? Yeah, that's very important to me. I better work in becoming this person myself. I'm not here. I am, baby. Please make me happy. No. <laughs> no. I had nothing to bring into relationship when I came in here. I had to do a lot of work on myself. You know. My partner, who is sitting over here, is this is really cute, though, really cute dude sitting there, and and, uh, and he heard me speak when he had a year, and he said, "God, I'm staying away from that one." And. Uh, <laughs> and um, and I saw him, what a cute, really a cute dude. Do not touch him. <laughs> Don't touch him. So we did service together for seven years before our first date. Sometimes quickly, sometimes really slowly. <laughs> really slowly, you know. And, uh, and our first date was after doing a meeting at San Quentin. I mean, very romantic, you know. And, <laughs> and he took me out to dinner, and we've had a lot of wonderful dinners together. I not only love this man deeply, I trust him, I respect him, I really admire his integrity with his family. That was the big attraction to me with him, his integrity, his integrity. Thanksgiving, we had a Christmas Eve luncheon with his three children, their spouses, his five grandchildren, his former wife and me. You know? And it was a very loving gathering. And we've been doing this for a long time. We've been there for the birth of all of his grandchildren. We're the first ones to babysit. And uh, thank you, Alcoholics Anonymous. My son adores him. You know? He's had some health challenges, but I can be there at my very best, at my very best now. Thank you, Alcoholics Anonymous. You, know, you got to eat your kindness because the language of the heart in these rooms is very real, but the rage did not leave me without the steps. I buried a lot of things out there, but I buried them alive. Unless I incorporate these steps in my life on a daily basis, but in my experience, it history repeats itself. Like Clancy used to say, surprise, not the goal of AA, it's just the interest AA. I come in here and I put down all those things, I'm still that same person. If anything, I started to feel better. Physically, I started to feel better, but I started to feel everything better. The fear of the loneliness, the shame, the guilt, but I never have to feel it alone. Never have to feel it alone. What are these steps? I had to practice. Sometimes I, oh, I did the steps. I'm doing the steps again. I have to practice them on a daily basis because I'm, cap I'm capable of hurting you stone cold sober. There's no doubt about it. On page 15, if you're 12 and 12, these steps are a group of principles, spiritual in nature, which are practiced as a way of life will expel the obsession or drink and they will suffer with me to be happily loosely whole. The key word there is practice. I have to practice, practice, practice. All the steps have a principle. Principle step one is honesty. I don't care how long I'm sober, who am I like when I drink? I mean I'm cruel, nothing is sacred for you, you have no value to me. That's honest. Principle step two is hope, believing I can change. Belief leads to reliance, and reliance leads to trust. I trust in this record with every part of my being. Principle step three is faith, turn my will and my life over. What's my will? My will is my thinking. My life is my actions. If my emotion back demands, usually my actions aren't too loving because it's all about me, all about me. 
And all that is is making the decision to with four of those steps, the courage to take that searching and fearless moral inventory to find out who and what I am and what I'm capable of becoming. And everything is possible. I sponsor don't forget the good things you did too, do. And I did do good things. Also, I got a chance to grieve over what I had done. We don't talk about grieving a lot of the meetings. Part of grieving is anger, isolation. I had to look at that. Step five broke the isolation. No one knew anything about me. I've had the privilege of hearing a lot of fifth steps. What an honor that someone will share their innermost secrets with you. Because the steps are not punishment, the steps will set you free. Six, willingness on action is fantasy. Step six. There's six parts to step six. I have to look at that, there's six parts to it. Seven is humility. My first glimmer of humility was coming in here and saying, I do not know what to do and please help me. Nothing has changed. Sometimes I come in here with great joy and sometimes I come in here and my heart is crushed. So every morning I just get up and I say, hey man, reporting for duty. Okay? If I'm paying attention, you'll find something for me to do. Otherwise I could sit at home and be the wounded martyr and judging others. Eight is forgiveness. Nine is justice, responsibility, and restitution. I had incredible rage in my alcoholic mother when I came in here. The very mention of her name could make me tremble. But when I accepted myself as an alcoholic woman, I began to understand and appreciate her torment and to come to love her in a depth I never thought of. I was able to separate the individual from the disease. I did not condone her actions, some bad things there. Again, acceptance does not need approval. But again, my emotion back demands from a woman who's not capable of giving it to me. As I said, my mother would be 117 years old. I mean, she comes from a world I have no concept of. Women had no rights in those years. They couldn't vote, they couldn't over there. She did the best she could at the time. My, my sponsor now, after my sponsor died, is Polly Pistol, who I've known for over 30 years. And she always said, do a little archeology span on your mother. You know? And I would so come to honor her legacy. Forgiveness began to enter my life when I became just willing to look at something differently. And I never say I'm sorry when I'm making an amends. I say I'm wrong. There's a big difference. I am wrong trying not to repeat the behavior. I've always done a 10 step, and I do it throughout the day. I'll pause. Maybe you tone of voice could have been a little bit better. Maybe you could have been a little bit more patient. I try and catch it before it gets out of control, before it gets out of control. I still make a gratitude list. I take nothing for granted. I take nothing for granted. The disease waits. Before I get out of bed, I lie there, I breathe, I say, here I am, and I know you're there. <laughs> Whatever you choose to believe in. Please guide me today using your tools to be the very best person that I can be, but not to be attached to results. Please reveal to me what needs to be revealed. Please heal for me what needs to be healed. Please guide me today to bring some happiness in someone's life if I go to bed at night. Were you joyful to be with today? Teresa Babla talks about treating your insides like a garden. God planted the garden, but that's me to water it. And to water the flowers. Laughter, caring, loving, giving, sharing, because these are the blooms of life. Stop watering the rocks and the weeds. Fear, anger, resentment, bigotry. Water is very powerful. I try and treat my mind like a river. Water is very powerful. You cannot hold it in your hand, but it can break down the strongest granite. But if it doesn't flow, it becomes toxic. Okay. Okay. Just like my thoughts, I'm going to have challenges. I'm going to have worries. I'm going to have things that are crushed my heart. Honor them. Share them with a mentor but then I have to let them flow through my mind like a river, because if they sit here for too long, they're gonna to become toxic. I'm gonna hurt you, I'm gonna hurt you. I don't want to hurt people. 
I've always done service ever since I've been sober. I've never been on a service commitment since I had two weeks of sobriety. Ever since I've had two weeks of sobriety, my sponsor always thanked the speaker, always welcome a newcomer. If you don't welcome them, they may not come back. She said, in your case, strong smiling, you look on the verge of attacking some of your school people. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and wish somebody a happy birthday. I've been doing this ever since I had two weeks. I still do this on Zoom. I put my number up there. I'll get the number of a newcomer and I'll call them. You know, my sponsor's really good. She was in, was in a hierarchy business. Well, they've got to call me. She used to call me to see if I was still alive because I was touching globe for a long time. It really was. I mean, it really was. I mean, it really was. You know, the first time I welcomed a newcomer, uh, I, I said, why are you doing it? If the newcomer says something back, she says, don't worry about it. Just welcome him. And, and uh, I welcomed the newcomer, and I'm walking back to the car, and she comes running up to me. And, and she says, I'm so glad you, you talked to me. I'm so frightened. And, and she started to cry. And what do I do now? <laughs> <laughs> so I just helped her. I just helped her. And uh, I don't go to that meeting that often. And one night I dropped in there, and the topic was newcomers. And, and this woman said, I remember the first time I came up to this woman. This woman came up to me. I was so glad she talked to me because I was so frightened. And after the meeting, she came up to me. She said, do you remember me? I said, I remember you, because she had one year. And so did I. And I had a couple of days on her. Yeah, a couple of days on her. I've always done service in Alcoholics Anonymous. I've done a lot of service outside of Alcoholics Anonymous. I used to do clown work in convalescent homes. You know, I like, and my clown name was Lulu. I used to bring them in. Because I, I, I like to work with elders. You know, people put them in these convalescent homes where nobody comes to visit them. And uh, we used to come in and bring joy, bring joy to these people. It's a very dark world out there. It's a very dark world out there. You know. I was doing a pre-release program at the Federal Prison for Women in Dublin. I did it one and a half hours every Monday for a year. And when I came in, I uh, brought in the poem of the butterfly, because I think the butterfly sings always beauty and transformation. At the end of the poem, it says, people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel, which is my Angelou. The last day of the class, the women wanted to have a little celebration, and they wanted the theme to be the butterfly. And the warden said, you can have one hour after the last class. So Claire and I come in to do the class, and they've gotten all this colored paper for the chaplain, and they turned the ceiling into a little mini garden. And all these colored butterflies were hanging from the ceiling, and colored flowers. On the blackboard, they made a big rainbow, and they said, we made it. Every Monday for a year was the big service commitment for these women. And they made a big heart. That whole heart was comprised of butterflies. And they said, thank you for the way you made us feel. And they all signed it. And I hope I never forget how Cox Anonymous made me feel when I came in here. Because I was so broken when I came down. I met this little sweet little old lady one day at a meeting, you know, and I was talking about being so exhausted, you know. And she said, let me give this to you, dear. So she gave me this little passage on exhaustion. And, and uh, she said, you know, exhaustion is the result when I use my energy on my over the past with regret or in trying to escape a future that has yet to arrive. Anxiously hovering over it for fear that it will or won't come true uses all of my energy and leaves me unable to live today. Yet living today is the only way to have a life. I will have no thought for the future actions of others, either expecting them to be better or worse as time goes by, for in such expectations I'm trying to create, I will love and let be. All people are always changing. If I try to judge them, I do so only on what I think I know them, failing to realize as much I do not know. I'll give others credit for attempts at progress and for having many victories which are unknown. 
I too am always changing it. I can make that change to a constructive one if I'm willing. I can change myself, but others I can really love. I have to give people the dignity of having their own journey, which is very difficult when we watch people destroying themselves. I was at the uh, International of Atlanta, uh, which is an incredible place. I was over at the Martin Luther King Memorial site, and um, incredible place to visit. And one of my favorite passages of his is, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can. And hate cannot drive out hate, only love can. So I come to you for the light, and I come to you for the love. Why would I ever want to leave this way of life? Thank you, Alcoholics Anonymous. And thank you for the great privilege of being here tonight.